0: Slade Gordon was an esteemed intellectual, an accomplished attorney, a shrewd political opponent, an Air Force colonel, a baseball nut, and one of the greatest public servants Washington State has ever known. After 92 years of working on behalf of others, the nonagenarian Solon died last month on August 19th. If you've never heard of Slade Gordon, you'll certainly know the great statesman by the end of this episode. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State history, heritage, and culture. And this is Washington Our Home. Before we begin this month's episode, I want to thank all of you who've left ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast platforms, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. If you have suggestions for topics, want to sponsor a segment of the podcast, or just want to reach out and say hello, shoot me an email at eric at That's E-R-I-C-H at washingtonourhome.com. Speaking of washingtonourhome.com, you can find tons of great content on the website, like blog posts about my travels throughout the greatest state in the lower 48, videos about people and places in Washington, and lots more. Plus, if you're a museum, cultural organization, or heritage site, I offer communications and marketing services that often don't cost you a dime more than time. Washington, our home, is dedicated to assisting the state's cultural institutions in preserving and promoting their own stories by expanding and enriching the experience of their audiences. From logos to local history curriculum, strategy to social media, and news releases to new technologies, Washington Our Home has the professional skills to help cultural community organizations reach a larger and more diverse audience, generate new heritage tourism dollars in local economies, and promote local history worldwide. Check it all out at WashingtonOurHome.com. Now to the other Washington, where the Washington Post recently printed the late great senator's obituary. I'll read that to you now. Mr. Gordon was the Chicago-born scion of a New England family that started a well-known company selling frozen fish. After settling in Seattle in 1956 to practice law, he went on to have a 40-year career as an old-line centrist Republican. He served in the state legislature and as state attorney general, and had three non-consecutive terms as a U.S. senator. As Washington's attorney general in the 1970s, Mr. Gordon was known for his aggressive consumer protection battles. In 1980, he defeated longtime Democratic Senator Warren Magnuson, emphasizing his relative youth, in contrast to the aging incumbent, by running to the state capital of Olympia to file his candidacy papers. He was one of the Republicans swept into office on the coattails of Ronald Reagan's landslide presidential victory, marking the first time the GOP had controlled the Senate in more than a quarter century. Mr. Gordon had a seat on the Influential Budget Committee and worked on Social Security and the budget. He seemed set for a long career in the Senate, but was narrowly defeated in his 1986 re-election bid by Democrat Brock Adams. Two years later, Mr. Gordon ran to fill an open Senate seat, defeating Democrat Mike Lowry with 51 percent of the vote. He easily won re-election in 1994 and became part of the GOP leadership under Majority Leader Trent Lott, Republican, Mississippi, who praised Gordon's wise counsel. Mr. Gordon twice saved professional baseball in Seattle, suing Major League Baseball in the 1970s to force it to bring a team to the city and arranging a deal to have Nintendo's owner and local investors buy the Mariners to keep them in town in 1991. Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington, who overlapped with Mr. Gordon in the Senate, said they didn't always agree, but still worked together to strengthen cleanup efforts at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State, toughen pipeline safety standards, and expand health care for children. Murray said Mr. Gordon, quote, anchored his leadership in honesty and honor, unquote, such as when he bucked his party to support the National Endowment for the Arts collaborated with Democrats on the conduct of President Bill Clinton's impeachment trial and supported the impeachment of President Trump. Mr. Gordon also supported the Equal Rights Amendment for women and the use of federal funds to pay for abortions for poor women. Quote, throughout his career in both Washingtons, Slade defied convenient labels and stood on principle. We need more leaders in our country, like Slade, unquote, Murray said in an emailed statement. By 2000, the 72-year-old Mr. Gordon was looking over his shoulder at a challenger 30 years his junior, Democrat Maria Cantwell. In an election in which nearly 2.4 million votes were cast, Cantwell prevailed by about 2,000 votes. Thomas Slade Gordon III was born January 8, 1928 in Chicago and grew up in the Chicago suburbs. He served in the army near the end of World War II, graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth College in 1950, and received a law degree from Columbia University in 1953. He then served in the Air Force before moving to Seattle in 1956, with the notion of breaking into Republican politics. Two years later, he was elected to the state legislature where he served for 10 years. He later served three terms as state attorney general. In the 1970s, he was among the first Republican officeholders to call on President Richard Nixon to resign for his role in the Watergate scandal. After leaving the U.S. Senate, he served on the 9-11 Commission and on the National Commission on Federal Election Reform, as well as numerous civic boards and campaigns. His wife of 55 years, the former Sally Clark, died in 2013. Survivors include three children and several grandchildren. You're about to hear an interview with the man who documented most of Slade Gordon's life. He was a trusted friend to the senator, and an accomplished writer and historian. After listening to the interview, stick around to take a short trivia quiz about Slade Gordon to see just how much you remember about the man. Longtime Washington public servant Senator Slade Gordon passed away August 19, 2020, at the age of 92. No one knew him better than his wife, his children, his closest friends, and perhaps his biographer, chief historian for the Washington Secretary of State's office, John Hughes. In 2011, Hughes published a 384-page book titled Slade Gordon, A Half-Century in Politics, on behalf of the Washington State Heritage Center's Legacy Project, now known as Legacy Washington. It's probably the most historically accurate, exquisitely detailed, and anecdotally entertaining work about the man known as a scion, a patrician, and one of the most intellectually astute politicians this state has ever seen. Joining me by phone is the author himself an award-winning journalist of over four decades, former editor and publisher of the Aberdeen Daily World, and longtime friend of Senator Slade Gordon, Mr. John Hughes. John, thanks for your time.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always a pleasure to talk about Slade, especially with his passing. Uh, This is a year when we can certainly use more of his wisdom.
0: You first met the man when you were a young reporter in 1966. Tell me your thoughts about him.
1: I was Prepping to cover the Washington legislature for the first time in the January of 1967. Luckily, I had an in. My editor's son, with whom I had worked, was a guy named Jay Frederickson, who later became Dan Evans's uh, press secretary. He pretty well knew the the whole Evans cohort, and I got to meet early on. Uh, it was uh, the person who showed me around at the Washington legislature that first uh, week was the redoubtable Adele Ferguson of the Bremerton Sun, who was a force of nature and the first female to cover the uh, full-time the Washington legislature. And she was had sharp elbows and knew all the ropes, including where all the bodies were hidden and where you could get a drink after hours.
0: And you wrote a book about her as well.
1: I did write about Adele. That was a hoot. But early on, I got to meet Gorton and Evans and... Ralph Monroe, our future secretary of state. So it was just a great time to be a reporter.
0: So, John, in researching your book, which is extraordinary, by the way, there are 16 pages of source notes and bibliography at the end. What did you learn about Slade Gordon's upbringing that might have signaled his eventual rise to power?
1: He was born bright and he grew up in a home that valued reading, patriotism, the Episcopal Church and baseball. So growing up in suburban Chicago in a tight-knit family, his dad and his grandparents, of course famously had been involved in Gortons of Gloucester. Uh, His dad left the firm to strike out on his own in greater Chicago during the Depression and built his own firm. And this close-knit family of people who valued Christianity, intellectualism, baseball, playing hard. He was just an extraordinarily bright, driven guy. His former campaign manager once quipped that everyone knows if Slate is elected to the United States Senate, it will increase the IQ about 20 percent on the first day.
0: Gordon was a Chicago and Boston man in his early life. But what was it about Washington state that drew him out west to spend the majority of his life here?
1: Horace Greeley was the newspaper man who coined the phrase, go West, young man. Gorton looked around, there's a couple of stories about this, but he saw opportunity. He saw that if he had stayed in the East and been a partner in a Boston law firm, it would have been um, certainly a comfortable life, but it would have taken him a long time to go up the pecking order to be a partner and the, the political opportunities there were constrained. And the more he read about the Northwest and about the progressivism in Washington and Oregon, that really appealed to him. So he struck out for Seattle. Uh, He landed in Seattle on a Greyhound bus with a few bucks in his pocket and bought a copy of the PI and and set out to settle in. And he quickly fell in league with uh, some really remarkable people, uh, one of whom was Jim Ellis. Jim Ellis, in my view, in the view of most, was the uh, most accomplished civic activist in the history of Seattle. It was Ellis, a young Seattle bond attorney, who set out to clean up Lake Washington in the 1950s, because the lake was just awash in the untreated affluent, and there was famously a sign of kids gazing at the lake longingly and saw a sign that said, no swimming, because the, the lake was so polluted. Hmm. So Gordon signed on together with Dan Evans, Joel Pritchard, and a group of other 30-something Eisenhower Republicans is how they would have characterized themselves to set out to create something called Metro to clean up Lake Washington. That 1956 to 1958 era that created Metro in the cleanup of Lake Washington was really the greening of his career. It was during that time that Dan Evans was elected as a freshman in the in the Washington House of Representatives, and Gordon two years later, if I recall correctly, and it was a pretty amazing era.
0: When compiling the stories of Gordon's life, did anything surprise you or catch you off guard? Anything you didn't know about?
1: I had never heard the story about John Goldmark. John Goldmark was a very, very liberal, brilliant I would say that he was the Democratic version of Slade Gorton. He was a rancher from the Okanagan, had an Ivy League degree, came west to get away from it all, and got involved in the legislature. And it the story took a really nasty turn when the John Birch Society in eastern Washington found out that Goldmark's young wife had been briefly, in the 1930s, like so many other idealistic young people, briefly a member of the Communist Party before she grew uh, dissatisfied with its lockstep uh, Stalinism and left the party. And they used that against him and defeated him at one of the nastiest campaigns I'd ever read about, calling him a tool of the monstrous communist conspiracy. Well, John Goldmark had never been a member of the Communist Party. He was, definitely was not a communist, didn't like communists, He sued for libel, and Gorton was asked by Bill Dwyer, the plaintiff's attorney for the gold marks, to be a character witness. Gorton, as he put it, I knew that if I said yes to be a character witness, it would cost me politically. And I knew that if I said no, I'd be a coward. And I I looked up, and he sort of had a, a resolute look on his face. And he said, looking back, that may have been the pivotal moment in my career in politics, There'd been almost no incident in those first three terms in the legislature that had really tested my character. And then he paused for a few seconds, and he sort of cleared his throat and recited from memory a stanza from a James Russell Lowell poem called The Present Crisis. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. And it was just an electric moment. There were a lot of other occasions where he had recited from Shakespeare or Walt Whitman or Rebecca West. But it was so evocative of the choice he would made at that time. And it really could have cost him if he hadn't have been so resolute in firing back against the Birch Society and the accusations that it was making. It could have been a political negative. Instead, it emerged as a, a political profile and courage.
0: John, you mentioned his political career as a state legislator. That took place just two years after he moved to Washington State. Can you highlight one of maybe his achievements while he was uh, spending his decade in the state legislature?
1: Absolutely. He, um, Dan Evans and uh, Pritchard et al. knew that if the Democrats outfoxed them in redistricting, that they could be a minority party for decades to come. So Gorton fought a absolutely mesmerizing battle with a remarkable Democrat Senator from Seattle, R.R. Bob Greve, whose trademark was his bow ties. Bob Greve was a brilliant tactician when it came to drawing redistricting lines and he met his match in Gorton. There's this wonderful photo that documents gorton and the redistricting brain trust holed up in a basement with shell oil maps and no computers then no computer aided cartography or google maps and they were using uh, service station road maps to draw boundaries and adding machine to coordinate different uh, longitude and latitude of different districts it was pretty amazing well they won and um their success wasn't as great as they had hoped, but they did win the majority in the Washington State House. Dan Evans became governor. Slade Gorton became majority leader. And during his time as majority leader, Gorton was responsible for pushing through for Jim Ellis uh, a series of initiatives uh, to the people called Forward Thrust. The Forward Thrust initiatives uh, succeeded in building the Kingdom, swimming pools, community centers. Uh, Industrial road improvements, sewerage districts throughout Seattle. And one of the measures that failed would have created a light rail system for Seattle with federal matching funds. And when that failed, Gorton called it the stupidest no vote the people of Seattle ever cast. The federal matching funds went instead to Atlanta which now has a really superb high-speed rail system. So in
0: 1969, Gordon became Washington State's attorney general. And I read that he often argued cases personally before the Supreme Court, which was unusual for an attorney general. What was one of the issues that defined his 12-year tenure as attorney general?
1: The, uh, the chief justice then, if I recall correctly, Warren Burger, said that no one makes better arguments than the attorney general from Washington. Well, notably, there was the appeal of the Bolt decision. There were a number of other cases involving treaty rights, several of which he won. Uh, Consumer affairs is an area where I think we've forgotten how much he achieved. And the fact is that he did that in a very bipartisan way. His predecessor as attorney general was a candidate for governor named John J. O'Connell, who did an exemplary job as attorney general, by the way, particularly in the area of consumer affairs. Gorton kept several of O'Connell's best people, particularly in the realm of consumer affairs. Latter-day attorney generals, including Bob Ferguson, who greatly admired Slade Gorton, admired what Gorton had done in the realm of consumer affairs as well. The hallmark, though, is that the fellow I mentioned earlier, Bill Dwyer, who had been the uh, plaintiff's attorney in the goldmark libel case, Gorton hired Dwyer to press a case against Major League Baseball for removing the Seattle pilots from Seattle. And it was a long, dragged-out fight. But by the end, Dwyer and Gorton had brought uh, Major League Baseball to its knees and secured a new franchise for Seattle in the form of the Seattle Mariners. Then again, when the Mariners were in trouble and Later down the pike, it was Gorton who played a key role in securing Japanese investment that kept the Mariners in Seattle. So Art Thiel, notably in his great book about the Mariners, points out that it was Gorton who saved baseball for Seattle twice. In
0: 1980, Gorton ran against and defeated U.S. Senator and state legend Warren Magnuson by a 54 to 46 percent margin. How do you think he was able to overthrow such a political
1: powerhouse? He did it with civility. Civility was a key thing. The whole theme was sort of, it's time to give Senator Magnuson a gold watch. If I recall correctly, the slogan was Washington's next great senator. So, Gordon admired Magnuson. He absolutely admired Warren Magnuson, a a giant of the United States Senate. And also, I mean, he was just indefatigable on the the campaign trail. And all the stars were aligning, too, from the standpoint of that whole cadre of Dan Evans. They called it the Dan Evans cohort. Dan Evans was the gold standard for Northwest progressive Republicans. And that was part of what propelled Gordon to the United States Senate.
0: So he was once a young upstart attorney who challenged a living legend, served in the U.S. Senate but it was eventually challenged by another young upstart named Maria Cantwell. What were Slade Gordon's thoughts about losing to her?
1: He had mixed emotions. If he were, had been elected, it was going to be his last term anyway. He did not dislike Maria Cantwell. He thought that she was competent. There was an interesting editorial board meeting at the Seattle Times, by the way, during that race. I later wrote a book about the Seattle Times, and one of the participants in that editorial board said that Gorton demonstrated a lot better knowledge of computer and high-tech issues than she did. That was a pitched campaign. I think that was the beginning where we really saw the politics in King County take a turn to the left, as it is today. So he went back to work, joined Seattle Law Firm, had a good seat, served on several commissions, most notably the 9-11 Commission. And then, irony of ironies, the wheel comes full circle, and as an 80-something, he was appointed to the Redistricting Commission. And I covered, the Redistricting Commission was meeting as I was wrapping up the biography, and I covered some of those. And again, it was striking to me how... Slade Gorton, who has always been cast as this lockstep, icy, brittle conservative person, the consensus that he was building with the Democrats. Dean Foster, former chief of staff to Governor Gardner and clerk of the Washington House of Representatives, who watched Gorton in action as a legislative intern in the 19, late 50s and 60s, those guys just got along famously. And thanks to citizen-mandated bipartisan redistricting, which those redistricting battles of the 1960s ushered in, they came up with a very equitable, and to my mind, fair redistricting plan, unlike the gerrymandering that has so often occurred elsewhere in America.
0: I remember that because I was working for the state legislature at the time. I often would bump into Senator Gordon as he'd be passing me in the hallway on his way to another redistricting commission meeting. It was very nice to uh, be exposed to a, a gentleman of such stature, uh, especially early in my legislative
1: career, well, those hours that I spent with Slade from having met him as a young reporter and then getting to do the book Eric, you have a you understand what a privilege it is to get to do oral history and that the first rule of every good oral historian if I write a book about doing oral history, I'll call it shut up and listen well,
0: that's what I'm doing right now by the way
1: you are and you're <laughs> and you're doing well at it i found it hard to get at word in edgewise with gorton what he was saying was so fascinating i would work up a whole script of questions that i'd want to ask a linear narrative and follow-up questions and there was one episode i remember one day there was a taping that lasted about five hours and I would manage to ask three questions, and the rest of the time was just these brilliant soliloquies, complete with recalling dialogue. I mean, he told me these stories about he and and Bob Grieve in the middle of redistricting fights. They found themselves alone together in the house cafeteria one night at 2 a.m., and they were sort of looking at one another over their suit and staking out their territory, and then they sort of smiled at one another and slayed walked over and sat down, and he did not talk about redistricting. I don't know. I I don't recall what he said. It could have been baseball, but it was sort of one of those wonderful little icebreaker things where civility and a sense of propriety intervenes.
0: After September 11th, 2001, Senator Gordon served on the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks Upon the United States, known as the 9-11 Commission. How did Gordon describe that particularly tumultuous time in American history?
1: For him... Getting to be on that commission with some really remarkable people, notably Bob Kerry, This was a brilliant bipartisan group of people who took so seriously their obligation to try to parse what happened, what led to 9-11. There's a story I could tell you about that that I think is really illustrative. And one of the members was a former uh, U.S. Deputy Attorney General named Jamie Gorelick. Jamie Gorelick was a a mainstream, classic New Deal Democrat. And at one decisive moment in the 9-11 Commission hearings, former Attorney General John Ashcroft insinuated that Jamie Gorelick, during her tenure at the uh, Attorney General's office, had helped break down a so-called wall that allowed Islamic extremists to find vulnerabilities in U.S. intelligence and led to the 9-11 attacks. When he made this charge, it was just pretty breathtaking. And Gorton was seated next to Gorelick and saw all the color drain out of her face, and she began reaching for documents that could refute this, and he sort of tapped her on the, on the elbow and said, let me handle this. And he proceeded to just eviscerate Ashcroft. The New York Times reporter was there to record it happily, wrote about it in a book about the 9-11 Commission. But everyone I interviewed about that incident, Republican, Democrat, independent uh, staffers, said it was an electric moment In one where uh, the verbal dexterity that Gorton had, it was just amazing. The cross-examination of the witnesses, there was another episode where Gorton and Rumsfeld squared off, and we know that Rumsfeld is a extraordinarily bright uh, master of double talk. Well, he was lapsing into some convoluted answer one day to a Gorton question, and Gorton just was withering in the way he put putting down saying, you know, that's a good answer, but it isn't an answer to the question I ask you. The question I asked you was, what made you think even when you took over? and got these first briefings, given the history of Al-Qaeda and its successful attacks on Americans, that we had the luxury of even seven months before we could make any kind of response, much less three years. And Rumsfeld bristles and and says, uh, my answer was on point. I didn't come up with three, blah, 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 blah. And one of the most telling things, if you read the 9-11 Commission report today, is how spot-on was the chapter that Gorton and Bob Carey drafted about the nature of the enemy. Here's a passage from The Nature of the Enemy. Because the Muslim world has fallen behind the West politically, economically, and militarily for the past three centuries, and because few tolerant or secular Muslim democracies provide alternative models for the future, Bin Laden's message finds receptive ears. Tolerance, the rule of law, political and economic openness, extension of greater opportunities to women These cures must come from within Muslim societies themselves. The U.S. must support such developments, but this process is likely to be measured in decades, not years. Islam is not the enemy. It is not synonymous with terror, nor does Islam teach terror. America and its friends oppose a perversion of Islam, not the great world faith itself. That's good writing. And not only is it good writing, it's, to my mind, incredibly illustrative of two great minds, Bob Carey and Slade Gordon, dispelling the notion that Islam was the enemy.
0: Gordon was both a Navy veteran and an Air Force veteran, retiring from the reserves in 1980 as a colonel. What did he have to say about the other facet of his public service?
1: The Navy was a brief thing when he's barely a kid at the tail end of World War II, but the US Air Force service is a classic example of a extremely able, uh, attorney emerging into the uh, Judge Advocate Corps and getting to do all sorts of uh, everything from defending an airman who went absent without leave by accident to higher-profile cases. It was just more in the greening of attorney. For Slade, being in the U.S. Air Force was just like being a skilled attorney being drafted like a skilled chest surgeon. I mean, it wasn't so much that he was imbued with military lore. Although he was a student of American defense, he was so bright that he made rank quickly, stayed in the reserves, became a colonel. It was just another facet of his career.
0: John, what do you think future sons and daughters of Washington State should know and remember historically about Slade Gordon?
1: He was a patriot. He cared about public service. That's the reason he came to the Northwest. Although he said that he felt it would take him a long time to move through the ropes and become a full partner in a prestigious uh, East Coast law firm, with his intellect and chops as a a trial attorney, I think he could have been a multi-multi-millionaire. Instead, he chose public service. Like his father before him, who struck out on his own from Gortons of Gloucester, there's kind of a, uh, that whole Horace Greeley, go West young man ethos to that. I think he's a very complex, dedicated public servant and civic activist. For those of us who really like baseball, I mean, he saved baseball for Seattle. He did it twice. By the way, there's a wonderful thing. I feel badly that Slade left us without ever seeing the Mariners go to a World Series. When the Cubs won the World Series, I called Slade. And I, for a guy who was styled as a cold fish, he was as, as excited as a 10-year-old.
0: John Hughes, author of Slade Gordon, Half Century in Politics. It's been wonderful learning more about your experience with Senator Gordon. Thank you so much for your time, John.
1: Well, it's a great honor. Thank you, Eric. I much appreciate it. And the book, by the way, we had several boxes left from the first printing, and we've reduced the price to $20, including tax and shipping, I think. So if anyone wants to go to the Secretary of State's website under Legacy Project, we have a special on that biography now in honor of Slade, hoping to get that book in even more hands, and especially in the hands of young people who want to read about a great public servant.
0: Fascinating life Senator Gordon had, wasn't it? And what a consummate professional Mr. John Hughes is. Time now for some trivia questions to see how much you learned about the man, the myth, and the legend of Slade Gordon. Question number one. Who did Gordon defeat in his first run for US Congress? Was it A, Scoop Jackson, B, Richard Nixon, C, Warren Magnuson, or D, Brock Adams? Remember, this is Gordon's first congressional run. Question number two. Who did John Hughes say that Gorton, quote, eviscerated during the 9-11 commission testimony? Was it A, Bob Carey, B, Jamie Gorelick, C, Donald Rumsfeld, or D, John Ashcroft? And question number three. What was the name of the Gorton family business? Was it A, Gorton Pew Fisheries, B, Gortons of Gloucester, C, Slade Gordon and Company, Or D, John, Pugh, and Sons? Just the three questions this time, and I'll have the answers for you right after this short break. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. There are a few ways to help lower the spread of this respiratory disease. Wash your hands. Avoid touching your face, including mouth, nose, and eyes. Cover your coughs and sneezes monitor your symptoms and consult with your doctor, stay at home and away from other sick people except for medical care, clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. So how do you think you did in our Slade Gordon trivia segment? Well, I've got the answers for you. Question one was, who did Gorton defeat in his first run for US Congress? Your multiple choice answers were Scoop Jackson, Richard Nixon, Warren Magnuson, or Brock Adams. And the correct answer is Warren Grant Maggie Magnuson, who had served over 36 years in the Senate and was the most senior member of the body during his final two years in office. Slade respected his political opponents so much that his campaign to replace Magnuson called for giving the senior senator a gold watch and a restful retirement. Question two was, who did John Hughes say that Gorton eviscerated during the 9-11 commission testimony? The possible answers were Bob Carey, Jamie Gorelick, Donald Rumsfeld, and John Ashcroft. And the correct answer is John David Ashcroft, the American lawyer, songwriter, and former politician who served as the 79th U.S. Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration. Ashcroft tried to insinuate that Jamie Gorelick was somehow complicit in the 2001 terrorist attacks, after which Gordon came to her rescue by publicly admonishing Ashcroft so thoroughly that it was later written about in a book called The Uncensored History of the 9-11 Commission by New York Times writer Philip Sheenan, who was covering the hearings. That brings us to question three. What was the name of the Gorton family business? And your answers were Gorton Pugh Fisheries, Gortons of Gloucester, Slade Gorton and Company, or John Pugh and Sons? And the answer is, it was a trick question. Truth be told, the Gorton family business had been known by all four of those names. A father and son fishery business was established in Gloucester, Massachusetts as John, Pugh, and Sons in 1849. In 1874, an out-of-work mill superintendent founded a fishing business nearby called Slade Gorton and Company. In 1905, the Slade Gorton Company adopted the Fisherman at the helm of a schooner, known as the Gorton's Fisherman, as the company trademark. One year later, the two fisheries merged to become Gorton Pew Fisheries and was the first to introduce America to the frozen fish stick. And in 1957, the name was changed to Gorton's of Gloucester, which was the name cited by John Hughes in the interview. And as an added bonus, does anyone remember the jingle? Trust the Gorton's Fisherman. Ah, nostalgia. That wraps up this month's episode of the Washington Hour Home podcast. Many, many thanks to John Hughes for spending the time with me, and many more thanks to Slade Gorton and his family for their service to the greatest state in the lower 48. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes featuring stories from Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And follow Washington Our Home on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Next month, I have an assignment. A former high school classmate of mine contacted me because she's homeschooling this year and wants to incorporate some Washington State history in a creative and engaging way. She's planning to take the kids on a series of road trips to historically significant places in Washington, and she asked me to recommend my top 10, which got me thinking. How in the heck does a Washington State history buff narrow down his favorite places to just 10? Well, Nikki, challenge accepted. Until then, I'm your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.